millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot? Gordon. <laughs> The lamp is burning low upon my tabletop. The snow is softly falling. The air is still, and in the silence of my room, I hear your voice softly calling. If I could only have you near to breathe a sigh or two, I would be happy just to hold the hands I love on this winter night with you. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates the work of Gordon Lightfoot song by song. I am your host, Mike Messner, and along with me today is one of the major contributors to the Gordon Lightfoot Gold Facebook group, Deb Rodwan. Welcome, Deb, and glad to have you with us. Hey, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm so excited. All right. Any so, opportunity to talk about Gordon, I'll take. Oh, you better know it. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's start with the basics. How did you get into Gordon's music? You know, I remember it pretty well. If you could read my mind had come out, I was cooking in the kitchen. My folks both worked and I was in charge of getting dinner ready. I had the radio on in the kitchen. If you could read my mind came on and it just bowled me over. I mean, I just remembered standing there almost agape listening to these beautiful lyrics. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you could read my mind and thinking this is something special. Yeah, and you were absolutely right. I mean, it really is. And it's probably as much as any song that he's ever done, it's one that defines him, uh, at least in the popular culture. Have you ever seen Gordon live? What was the experience like? I've seen him live about 70 times. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot. <laughs> I've seen him. I, you know, one of the lucky things about living in the L.A. area is that when he comes out here, he does like five different venues that, you know, we're all used to driving out here. So they're all within an hour, you know, give or take distance from where I live. So I go to all of them. So when he comes out and he does five shows in five venues, I go to all five. Oh so that's how I rack up 70 shows. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I've seen him about 70 times and uh, had many meet and greets and, I am always, you know, like on the computer at 10 o'clock when those tickets go on sale so that I can get good seats. There's no one like him. And I've been to a lot of concerts. There's no one else that I've seen 70 times. Now, when you've seen him in 70, and I know that there's all kinds of venues in L.A. and in Orange mm -hmm. County, you know, around that area. Right. Do you prefer the larger venues or the smaller venues? And is there a venue in particular that you would just absolutely, you know, walk a hundred miles to go see him again at? 
Well, you know, they were all pretty special. When, when I was seeing him in the 70s and 80s, he was doing places like the Greek Theater and the uh, Universal Amphitheater, which at the time was outdoors. And that was a little bigger auditorium. And, you know, you didn't have that intimate feeling that a smaller venue gives you. So I prefer the smaller venues. You know, it's one of those things where pretty much wherever you're sitting, it's a great seat because it's not huge. And I've been lucky enough to have, you know, first row seats many times within the first five rows. That's pretty tough to do in a, in a big, big auditorium. So I prefer the smaller auditoriums. I would probably love to see them at the Hollywood Bowl. That would be something pretty special, but I wouldn't want to be up in the rafters. I, I'd want to be up close, but right. uh, really any, any venue mm-hmm. is wonderful. And I, especially if it's a more intimate setting. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think I'd probably go anywhere to see him, but I would prefer small theaters Right. Uh, more than the huge, big auditoriums because the sound quality, but then also just the intimacy. Because when I think of Gordon's music, I think of the kind of setting that this song that we're talking about today really fits into so well. I mean, it's almost a living room effect. Exactly. And you, you get this idea of, you know, this small enclosed indoor space, which brings us to Song for a Winter's Night, which is what we're talking about today. I will talk about what, you know, why, what it means to me, but why did you really want to talk about this song on this show? Well, this is my second favorite song, Behind Shadows. And really, I love his more intimate songs that are about feelings, anything that's about a universal circumstance, like missing someone or uh, losing someone regretting the loss of someone. Those are all universal feelings that we've all felt. And those are the songs that I tend to be drawn to the most. But I am also really, some people are brought into a song by the melody. I'm brought into a song by the words. Mm -hmm. I'm a word person. I read, I've written books. I am a word person. And when I listen to a song like Song for a Winter's Night, it is sheer poetry. Mm-hmm. This is not a man just saying, oh, look at the snow outside. You know, that one paragraph in particular where he says, the morning light steals across my window pane where webs of snow are drifting. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> than that. You know, yeah. I mean, there are some key lines in a lot of his songs, you know, that they're just poetry. They're poetry. And this song to me is one big poem. It is just beautiful, imaginative, descriptive writing full of feeling and heart that just transports you to that cabin in the woods. And, you know, throw in a few sleigh bells and oh my gosh. Yeah, Yeah, you know, I actually tried when I was a teenager to sort of reenact the kind of setting that he was talking about. My parents were out somewhere and I was old enough at that point to be left alone. Mm -hmm. And I put the record on my dad's turntable 
And there was a fire going anyway because it was winter. Now, winter in Northern California, where I live or in the Bay Area, we don't get snow. So the best I could hope for was just a cold, windy night. So I had the fire going in the fireplace and I had uh, some sort of stew or chili that my mother had made. And I was listening to this and I had all the lights out in the room. And I just thought this is the kind of thing, this is the setting that I would want. I would want to be, I can see myself in a cabin somewhere where it snows, maybe in the mountains, maybe in Canada, I don't know, but to have that kind of experience and to feel very wistful and to be missing someone, although I Mm -hmm. wasn't with anyone at that particular time, but that was, I could kind of sense the physical setting, if not the emotional setting for the song. So is that, this is the kind of song I'm guessing that you would want to listen to you might want to listen to it anywhere, but would you want to listen to it like on a cold night with a fire going or? Oh, of course. It, but you're right. I would listen to it anywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. in a car driving, when you're sitting in the middle of traffic, it just calms you down. You know, when the night nights are cold or raining and, you know, you have that maybe one dim lamp on and you're missing somebody, you know, it's just, it's just a fantastic it's the feeling of that song, you know, it just, it just transports you, you know. And the thing that I find interesting about the song, when we look at the origins of it, it's not written the way I understand it. The song was not written in a particularly romantic setting or at a particularly (laughs) romantic place or a particularly romantic time. It was not like he was sitting in a cabin and talking about this is what's happening to me Mm -hmm. in my heart and around me. You know, it, it was almost kind of a mundane location and set of settings where he wrote the song, wasn't it? Yeah, he was doing a show in Cleveland, Ohio. It was called, I have it here. It was owned by a Mr. Kane and it was called La Cave, spelled like cave. And he was staying at Kane's apartment. And he said it was a hot night. It was summer. It was muggy. It was ugly. And he was missing his wife, Britta. And this song just came out of that place. He was transported, you know, and just was thinking about winter nights and, you know, all those images that he put in the song and how he was feeling missing his wife. But, you know, you hear that song and you do conjure up ideas of a cabin in the woods and, you know, maybe him penning this song. And really, it was in an apartment in Cleveland on a muggy, humid summer thunderstorm night. So about as far removed in all senses from the actual, you know, scenario where the song is happening. Yeah. So it's remarkable. And it's even more remarkable that he's able to construct, as you said, that kind of beautiful poetry in something that really doesn't inspire, you know, that kind (laughs) of thinking or you wouldn't think of that kind of thinking. It does make me wonder if he and Greta had had nights like that where during the winter in a cabin. And so Mm -hmm. his mind was going back to those kinds of places. I don't know if you have any insight in that. I don't. I mean, I'm sure in the beginning of their marriage, he and Britta had um, 
you know, wonderful times, but I don't know specifically. Okay. Well, let, let's take a look at the lyrics for just a second. Okay. So we've talked about the first verse and then you've talked about the third one. Right. The second one, the smoke is rising in the shadows overhead. My glass is almost empty. I read again between the lines upon each page, the words of love you sent me. So, you know, the smoke is rising, which gives me the impression that there's a fire going mm -hmm. uh, in the fireplace. Okay. My glass is almost empty. So he's been drinking, maybe to numb the pain, maybe to forget, right. maybe it just happened he was having with his dinner. And then I read again between the lines upon each page. It gives me this impression that like all people who have to do long distance relationships in the days before the internet, you know, this is all you have is just That's the right. letter over snail mail That's that right. he's been sent. And you read those words over and over and over again maybe not to get any added meaning just because it makes you feel closer to the person. That's right. I, I was uh, married to someone that I met in Ireland way back in 1987. Uh, <laughs> we were only married a few years, but he was in Ireland and I was here and this oh. was pre-internet. And, you know, we were writing letters overseas and, you know, you do reread those letters over and over again. And, you know, typically they're very romantic and it, it just, you just, you read those lines, you read in between the lines, you know, exactly the way he says here. Yeah. And then the third verse, you kind of got the last half of it, but the fire is dying. Now my lamp is growing dim. The shades of night are lifting. So he's been up all night. All night. Uh, mm -hmm. Thinking about this person, in this case, it right. would be Greta. And now the morning is coming and you know part of me almost wonders okay so what's he going to do now that the morning has come is he going to realize how tired he is Is he's going to go to bed or mm -hmm. you know he didn't write a sequel to this but it would be right. kind of fun to speculate on well and i i have maybe some insight on that kevin hester i have to give him all the credit kevin hester had wondered if the sound of the sleigh bells at the end of the song were signaling his approaching sweetheart Oh. And um, so I was actually going to see him in concert and I was lucky enough to have a meet and greet. And so I, when I had a chance with Gordon, I asked him and I said, tell me, Gordon, at the end of that song, when we hear the sleigh bells, does that signal his approaching love? And Gordon got so excited and he said, yes, yes. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, somebody got it, you know? So he was tickled to death that we caught that. Kevin gets all the credit for it. I just asked the question. But knowing that and that perspective turns a kind of a sad song of missing your true love into kind of a happy song because, you know, at the end, they're together. So I love that. I love it. And it's difficult to tell unless you listen very carefully to that effect. And we're going to talk about the different versions that there have been of this song in a minute. But it's difficult unless you really concentrate on the, the bells at the end of whatever the right. recording is, because otherwise you just think, okay, well, it's kind of fading out. Right. It's kind of this cinematic touch that there is to the song. Right. And, but if you realize at least on one of the recordings, okay, the bells are getting just a little bit louder before they fade out. And I think that was probably Gordon had that on his mind, but it's also a great production 
idea there to make the bills fade in just a little bit more before they fade out. So that's beautiful. So the song, I've only heard two versions of this song. It came out on The Way I Feel, which if I'm not mistaken, was his second LP. And then it was re-recorded with strings and additional vocals on Gord's Gold. Now we'll get to the differences between the two in just a second. But for me, the thing that I loved the most about the song, you mentioned the sleigh bells. Okay, so something that's external from the song itself. But the thing I loved the most about this was on Gord's Gold, you had the vocals at the very end. And I'm still not sure who actually did them, but you have this long fade out and you have somebody going along with the instruments. And to me, that was my favorite part of the whole song, apart from the poetry itself, but the production of it. And they did that on Gord's Gold. They didn't do that on the original. Now, they were recording all of album one over again, because as Gordon said, he doesn't like listening to his early work. So have you listened to both of those versions back to back? And do you have any thoughts on either of them or compared uh, both of them? Yeah, I did want to say that there is a video of Gord performing that song early on, and they do do that vocal at the end. The band does. On the live one. Yes, Mm -hmm. on that live uh, video clip. But I prefer the Gordon's Gold version better. Mm -hmm. I think his voice sounds richer. It sounds more mature. It sounds fuller. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is on the original version, the tempo is a little faster than the Gord's Gold version. Mm -hmm. And I like the little slower, letting the words sink in a little bit as he's singing it. But I found the first album, the tempo was just a little bit quicker. Yeah, I didn't notice that so much, but I think I really loved the orchestration on Gord's Gold because it made it more cinematic. It set the scene more. And it was almost, I mean, I'm not a fan of Hallmark Christmas movies, but it seemed like that could have been in a Hallmark Christmas movie because it was really setting this the snow falling. I mean, if you close your eyes to the Gord's Gold version, you can really almost see in your mind's eye the snow falling. I didn't get that same feeling from the one from The Way I Feel, although I like both of them. Yeah. You know, but it's just an interesting contrast. Right. I got to tell you that my other favorite part of the music on this, I mean, you talk about Gordon's vocal being richer, and I agree with you, but John Stockfish's bass all through that, especially as the verses or some of the quatrains are kind of taking a turn into the next mm-hmm. section, you hear this boom, 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 boom. I mean, I, I don't play bass, but yeah. just the way that that happened, I mean, it was just so perfect. And he could have chosen to just stay with the root note and not do anything particularly mm-hmm. fun with it. But the fact that he did that so beautifully, it makes me realize that when we say that Lightfoot really owes a lot of his success to his band, you know, Stockfish was as important to the early years of that. He's since passed away, but right. he's certainly as responsible for that early part of Gordon's career as anybody is, including Red Shea. Yeah. So. The, 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 one of the things that I really liked on the documentary mm-hmm. was, I think it was when Rick was coming on board and he was commenting Maybe it was to Pee Wee or to, I can't remember who was coming and who was going, but the comment was made, 
We're not two instruments. We are playing as one voice musically. And I think that's one of the things that Gordon does so well. All of his band is so talented, past and present. And they just, it, it just comes together like one voice. It's amazing. Talking about the people who are in the band, the people who recorded the original Okay, and maybe the ones who weren't on the Gord's Gold version. I don't have my liner notes in front of me. Okay, mm-hmm. Gordon was doing the guitar and vocals, and I think it was a six string because doing finger picking on a 12 string is much more intricate. Red Shea on lead guitar, John Stockfish on bass, Kenny Buttry was doing percussion, although I almost couldn't hear it. I and it, re- it really didn't need a whole lot of percussion. Charlie McCoy was doing the third guitar and he was playing the jingle bells, you know, uh, at the tail end. And then it was produced by John Court. And if I'm not mistaken, that's the same John Court who was involved in producing Bob Dylan for his first record. Do you know anything about that? I don't. I don't. Okay. Okay. Because there was a John Court and I'm thinking, I mean, the world can't be that small. No, Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, John Court, actually, the story behind that was that Dylan wasn't old enough to sign a legally binding contract. And so Dylan's father, Abe Zimmerman, called Columbia Records to try to sort this out. And John Court took the call. And Dylan was just absolutely outraged when he found out about this because he wanted to maintain distance from his parents. And so right. he called Minnesota. And apparently, according to somebody's book, you called John Court! And this is just huge <laughs> shouting match. Okay, which is, you know, I'll let, you know, the folks at Pod Dylan, you know, talk about that. Right. But I just thought that was kind of interesting. The album, The Way I Feel, it went gold in Canada. And I don't believe Song for a Winter's Night was put out as a single. Mm-mm. At least, I don't know if it was in Canada, mm-hmm. but certainly not in the U.S. Yeah. And I don't know that Gordon had really made the breakthrough into the U.S. market so much. My impression is that that happens a little bit later in his career. Although yeah. the Sit Down Young Stranger album that was then morphed into If You Could Read My Mind, it certainly put him on the map. But I don't think he really broke through as a superstar until a little bit later. So it would make sense that he wouldn't. The song has been re-recorded by at least 27 different artists, including Sarah McLachlan. And I know that I run hot and cold on cover versions of songs, and I'm sure you do too. My favorite one, though, is I don't even know if this is on an album anywhere, but I saw a documentary on the late Jim Croce, who's another one of my very favorite singer songwriters. And he and his wife, Ingrid, were singing it in this documentary, and they were singing this beautiful two-part harmony to it. And there is no harmony that I can sense on either one of the original Lightfoot recordings. So I, I suppose what I want to know is, knowing that you may not have a particular taste for this, but is there a particular artist whose recording you liked of it or someone that you would like to hear do it? That's something I'll probably be asking all of my guests on the show. I must confess, I'm not a big fan of covers. Mm -hmm. I have heard a couple renditions and I know, you know, like Harry Belafonte has done it. Sarah McLaughlin's is a fine song if I had never heard Gordon. Yeah. yeah. But once you hear Gordon, to me, it, it everything runs a second, you know. And as far as anyone else doing it, 
you know, I, I just think when you have the original, everyone is a distant second. It kind of ruins you for anybody else, doesn't it? Yeah. I I have to confess that that is my feeling. And I so respect all these people that, uh, you know, people who make a living singing covers and it's enjoyable when you're out on a night on the town and, you know, listening to people perform songs from musicians that you just love. But as far as like going out and buying an album for someone, I, I just probably wouldn't. I can tell you that there's only one, I guess, modern artist that I would love to hear record it. And that's the Indigo Girls. Uh-huh. Um, because number one, I think they sing harmony as well as anybody does or can these days. And second, I think it is kind of up the alley of Emily Sailors, because that's the kind of stuff that I think Amy is a little bit more into, Amy Ray is a bit more into punk rock and into right. really rocking out. Emily's a little bit more contemplative. So I would love to hear them cover that. I don't know if they ever will. He has played this. I don't, if you did research on this, then, you know, that's great, but I'm going to let you take a guess on this. How many times has Gordon played this song in concert? Well, I can tell you he's played it Every time that I've seen him since the song came out. Okay. So uh, I would have to say that it is, it's a big number. I would say it's, see, if he does 150 shows a year, and that's, I would say 1500 times. Okay, not quite. Uh, although it is a fairly big number considering his repertoire, 335 times. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. From according to the research that I've done, the first time he played it at the Royal Albert Hall in London mm-hmm. in June of 1971. And most recently, he played it just about six months ago in Toronto at the El Macambo. Uh, and that was on December 18th of 2020. So it is certainly a staple, but it's not probably one that he's played as much as Edmund Fitzgerald or even if you could read my mind or things like that. So I hope he plays it for many, many more years. So good. I was way off on that guess. Just the fact that it's been something that he hasn't completely scrapped from his repertoire, obviously it means a lot to him that he continues to play it. Deb, it's really been great to have you along today. Any closing thoughts on on this song, on um, the original record that it came off of? You know, just as I said, this is my number two song, and I know that it's very high up on a lot of people's favorites. Um, you know, people have commented like, that's my number one, that's my number two. You know, I can just tell by people's reactions, different posts, and this is a well-loved song. And it, it deserves all the accolades and praise and love that it can get. It's just wonderful. Yes, it is. And I'm looking forward to listening to it the next time it comes up on my uh, Apple Music or the next time I'm taking a drive on a rainy night. So it's going to be good. Deb Radwan, thank you very much for joining me. And we'll see you all further down the Carefree Highway. If I could only have you near To breathe a sigh or two I would be happy just to hold the hands I 